Hello, teachers, parents, and other listeners. Thanks for tuning in to the Reading Teachers Lounge. I'm Shannon Betts, and I've been teaching since 2002, either as an elementary classroom teacher or in a reading support role. Currently, I'm working at a private school as a resource teacher for grades three through eight. You can find more about me on my website, readingdevelopment.com, or on Twitter and Instagram at rdngdevelopment. My co-host is Mary Sagafi. Her background is in special education. She's Orton-Gillingham certified and currently works as a tutor and parent advocate. We have a really special episode for you today. The number one question we get asked by our audience is about a recommended scope and sequence for phonics. Longtime listeners of the show know that Shannon is a huge fan of Wiley Blevins. She learned how to teach reading from his books and his scope and sequence is the one that she follows. So we thought he'd be the absolute perfect guest to speak on the topic of scope and sequence. We also cover a number of other topics with Wiley today, just because we've been wanting to chat with him for such a long time. We had a wonderful conversation. It's a long episode, but stay to the end because he shares a wealth of literacy knowledge, experience, and resources with all of us. Enjoy. This is the Reading Teachers Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. This episode of Reading Teachers Lounge is brought to you by Booker Class which is a storytelling-based English teaching app. The program features animated books with both classic and modern story titles. The animations are really cool, and they enhance students' comprehension and engagement. Booker Class also has many interactive learning tools to support readers' language development, such as annotated vocabulary, guided text highlighting, and games and quizzes to go along with the stories. You know we love those multi-sensory touches. Booker Class was designed for teachers by teacher, teachers and is aligned with Lexile levels. Check out their link in our show notes or visit their website directly for a special trial offer at bookerclass.com, B-O-O-K-R class.com. Try bookerclass.com. Your readers will love it. Welcome to the Reading Teachers Lounge. Hey, Shannon, we have a special guest today. Do you want to introduce him to everyone? Yes, drum roll. This is someone we've wanted in the Teacher's Lounge for a long time. Welcome, Wiley Blevins from New York, live from New York. I am live from New York, but it's not Saturday night, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're not in the Teacher's Lounge that late. (laughs) So um, for our listeners who might not know you, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do. Okay, well, I started out as an elementary school teacher. I taught both in the United States and South America. And then I did my graduate work at Harvard because I realized I didn't know really how to teach young children to read. And as an elementary school teacher, it was a terrifying realization. And so that really started my journey doing educational research, working with school districts and, and publishers to look at the materials that we use to teach and how we teach currently. I'm doing work with various school districts. I help to uh, train the reading coaches, the literacy coaches here in New York City. We have over 400 now that are in the highest need schools. I'm just a teeny part of their training. I focus on the foundational skills piece, but it's really 
wonderful work that they're doing. Uh, and then I'm also working on some, some books that I do for teachers. I wrote the International Literacy Association's Brief on Phonics called Meeting the Challenges of Early Literacy Phonics Instruction, which uh, is a short piece that's designed for teachers to look at the seven characteristics of strong phonics instruction, the 10 reasons why phonics instruction sometimes fails, which has been a huge focus of my research the past 10 years. It's also written as a piece that's short and accessible that you can give to parents. It's free, it's downloadable, so I like having that piece. And currently I'm working on a tier three intervention program. If our listeners haven't um, already listened to it, we have an episode that actually reviews um, your international literacy piece. So we, um, we chat about all of the points that you make in it, why it's important, and we encourage our listeners to download it. So once again, hey, hey, check out our previous episode. It's in season two, and I believe it's episode two. We'll put a correction if that's incorrect information. And we'll link, we'll link to it in the show notes. Definitely. So one thing I like that you do, Wiley, always is you're, you're always, um, you, you still stay in touch with readers and with teachers. You're never fully outside the classroom, it seems like. No. No, I don't feel like I can do the work I'm doing unless I'm deeply entrenched in what's happening in classrooms all the time. Uh, I think that too often people are too far removed. I've sort of seen my career more as like a translator, even though I do my own research. I've had the great fortune of working with some really amazing, brilliant minds in education, like Jean Chaw and Marilyn Adams and Louisa Motes and Isabel Beck and Tim Chan and on and on and on. I've been able to work with them one-on-one. And so I feel like part of what I, how I can help is to take these great ideas and then look at and test out the practicality of them. Because it's great to have, you know, these wonderful ideas, but a teacher has to walk into the classroom tomorrow and implement these things. And what does that really mean? And how do we present this information in a nuanced way that the teacher can use it most effectively? Because we can take a really great idea and apply it in a really bad way. And then we stop using this great idea. I've seen that a lot in education. So I've always seen my role more as a translator and uh, classroom application focused. I loved in one of your books, um, in A Fresh Look at Phonics, one of the pieces that you say is, um, it's always really good to review this information too, because I think that sometimes if you just have a poor classroom experience as a teacher, you think, okay, that, you know, you're reflecting on your work, oh, that didn't go very well, and then you try the next thing, and it's not worth to throw all of it away after one bad experience. So I think that constant relearning and re-understanding, um, you know, some of these topics that you're talking about in foundational skills is essential because you might hear it a different way and get a new idea and, and present it in a new way and really figure out, oh, there's where I went wrong. And maybe your reflection was just a missed opportunity or there's a number of reasons. I love in your also fresh take on phonics, you kind of say, what are the pitfalls? What are the downfalls? Why don't these things happen um, successfully in the classroom? And you really outline it. So I have to say that that I think would have been so wonderful as a new teacher so that I could kind of refine my reflection practices. Um, So anybody, I mean, really any teacher can pick up any of your books and kind of find those exact kind of points. And I highly encourage anyone to do that because it's that reflection that I think can be, if you don't have the support of an administrator or, you know, a mentor teacher, you can miss those, those opportunities. So I just wanted to share that because I think it's really important. 
that's a huge focus of my work is starting wherever teachers are with whatever they have and fine tuning it to take it to the next level so we can maximize student learning. We all have different starting points. We all have different things that we know and don't know. And so the great thing about education for me is nobody knows everything. You know, I, I get scared if someone acts like they know everything because nobody knows everything. Even the brilliant minds that I've worked with, they're always questioning, they're always searching. And so, you know, what I know today is the best of everything I know in, in terms of how to teach phonics, but I know that I'll learn more as, as time continues and I'm seeking that out because it's all about fine tuning and fine tuning. Uh, so you have a lot of things in your, your, your uh, toolkit to meet a wide range of student needs. We, when it comes to phonics, students are all over the place at every grade. It's, it's actually a very, it can be a very challenging thing to teach because of that. And so the more we know and the more tools that we have, the better we'll, we'll be to maximize student learning because we have a short period of time to do it well early on so that they get to mastery, transfer those skills and move on in their reading development. So I also feel the urgency to accelerate that mastery in the work that I do. And especially right now in the middle of the pandemic as well, um, that urgency has just, you know, exacerbated everyone's, um, I don't know, stress level and, and everybody just really wants kids to have mastery. But if you don't follow that specific scope and sequence, if you don't really make sure that you're assessing carefully or reflecting on practices and my biggest the big push that I have is constant review yeah. and skills need to be drilled and they need to become automatic. And I know that you preach that all the time um, because that's how kids take learning and, and make it their own. Um, well, I think the biggest misconception about scope and sequences, I know it's not necessarily the sexiest topic, but it is a topic of great interest with people. But the biggest misconception is that it's a list of skills. It's not a list of skills. All a scope of sequence does is tell you where you start the exploration of a skill, the beginning work on that skill. When I introduce a skill in a scope of sequence, I'm going to work on that skill for the next four to six weeks so that all my students get to mastery so they can transfer that skill. So a scope and sequence to be effective has to have a really robust review and repetition cycle built in. All the different ways in which I can hold on to that skill for as long as all my students need to transfer it to both reading and writing. We often sort of race through these skills and some students do okay in terms of the reading piece but can't spell a word because we haven't, we haven't spent enough time, you know, the writing lags behind the reading and we have to have these rich conversations about how words work and, and all of these other things have to go on. And so if we think of it as a list of skills that we're marching through, it's exposure focused learning, it's not going to work. It's not gonna get all your students where they need to be. So for me, you know, I, I had this sort of silly saying when I work with the coaches here, no more one and done, you know, that one week and we're done, but now one and just begun. It's just the beginning of all the meaty work we're going to do. I'm taking so many notes. Okay, um, this is amazing. I, I just wrote that down. No more one and done, but now it's one and just begun. I really okay. like that. Um, I like that you described that you were your career as a translator, because I do feel like you were my own translator. When I started, um, I mentioned this in season one, like when I became a reading teacher, really, I'd been teaching in the classroom for a while, but I didn't know how to teach a non-reader how to read. Mm 
-hmm. and your books, Phonics A to Z and Teaching Phonics and Word Study and Intermediate Grades, those books translated for me what I should have learned in college and told me where to start with those, um, with those students. And we have also talked about, you know, start where the students are. And then, uh, you know, you said start where the teachers are. And so you kind of bridge both of those because your books are written where if you don't know any of this, you can just start away uh, right away. But then now that I'm further along in my development as a literacy teacher, I still get nuggets every single time I pick up any of your books because um, they're kind of written for teachers all along the, the spectrum. Right. right. You know, so I, I knew from very early on, I didn't know how to teach a child to read. And I knew that was my main job. The very first interview I went on to become a teacher, the very first question from the principal was how do you teach a child to read? And instantly, what was your answer? <laughs> Instantly, I knew I didn't have an answer. So I had just read something about reading volume. I said, well, they can't learn to read if they don't read a lot. And I just sort of went to town on that. And the sweat and the, the feeling in my stomach, like I'm going to be a teacher in a couple months and I can't answer the most basic question. It was terrifying. It's actually encouraging me because I actually had a really similar experience as well. And I felt like my teacher program was so good and I tried so hard. I had a really difficult time student teaching too. The teachers that I worked with um, were hard on me and they really challenged me. But I didn't really feel like a partnership. So I didn't feel as like well equipped as, I mean, I'm kind of a type A person. I like to go into things and know the answer and feel confident. And when I was asked that same question about how do you teach a kid to read? And I felt like I fumbled on the answer and I went, I just spent all this money on a degree. And what do I know how to do? Nothing. It was, it was wild, but it also led me on my journey to special education because as a kindergarten teacher, I did actually get a job and I did actually learn to teach kids to read. But like Shannon, I didn't know how to, take struggling readers to proficient readers. And that was something that I really needed to find the answer for. And I think so many of our listeners are struggling with that exact same question. And I think that it's not really a secret, if you're really honest, that a lot of administrators aren't really equipped to support their teachers that way either. And I think if we can really kind of address this in a, hey, wherever you are, yeah. This, that's the way. I love your approach to that. Well, I'm glad you brought up administrators because when I do the trainings with the coaches here in New York City, they go out and share the information with the teachers that they work with and model it. And then I repeat the exact training, but they bring an administrator with them. Because often our administrators uh, perhaps never taught the primary grades. And so the kind of feedback I was seeing them give teachers was very surface. You know, the students were well behaved and they, you followed the lesson plan. And that really doesn't move the needle if it's a bad lesson plan. And so I started doing these checklists. So I took every phonics routine and I gave a checklist to teachers of things to keep in mind to take that, that particular activity like blending or dictation or what have you to the next level. And then I gave this a different checklist for administrators. Here are two or three things you can look at that if you don't see, 
it's really impactful advice to help the teacher take that routine to the next level. And then in some districts, they started collecting many video clips of master teachers during those routines. So these principals had mental models of what a great routine would look like. And all of that, we, we also, and they're, most of them are eager to improve their understanding in those areas as well. And when they're both working together, it can be really powerful. That is beautiful. Is there, are those checklists available anywhere? Yeah, I can send you, you a PDF of it. You can share with your listeners if you like. Yes, for myself and for the listeners. That would be amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. The look for us, okay, in the routine. That would be great. Well, I do, I, I know you kind of gave a broad answer of like scope and sequence, but I do want to get a little bit in specifics because that is the number one question we get from listeners is sort of um, when you have a non-reader like at zero, like where do you start in the scope and sequence? And then where do you go from there in order? And then I, I understand what you said earlier, like maybe if a student's more advanced than that level zero, you know, that level A or whatever, you could jump into the middle of that scope and sequence and start where the student is. But like, where do you start from the beginning? Yeah, so for me, a great scope and sequence is built on simplicity. So we go from simpler to more complex. It's separating confusing letters and sounds, but it's also, it also takes a very careful look at uh, conceptual leaps, which we'll talk about in a second, and also the generative nature of the phonics. So I want to teach high utility consonants and and vowels very early on, so children can make a lot of words right away, both to read and also to spell. So I want to make sure that, you know, I have short A and I have a couple of concepts like S and T and M where they can do sad and mad and at and Sam and I can create little stories. When they see that generative nature, it's very, very exciting. And it's really important to present it as a system. I remember very clearly when my first grade teacher, Mrs. Warshaw, explained what phonics was. You know, we had these strange squiggles and lines she called letters and they stood for sound by themselves or in combination. I understood how the system worked. And when I started <clears throat> seeing examples of that system, I started seeing other words in my environment and figuring out letter sounds before she even taught it because she taught it so systematically. And I understood how it worked. The generative nature, both in how we choose the letters and sounds, so the 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 most words can be created as early as possible so students see the, the utility of what they're learning, but also the fact that we, we explain and we have these conversations and we make our thinking public about how that system works so students can take that knowledge and run with it. So I remember very clearly <clears throat> when I was in first grade and I would go to church and I would hear the, thou, and do, if, and all these strange words, and I noticed they all had th together. And I figured out how to pronounce TH before Mrs. Warshaw got there because I understood that letters work together to make sounds. She had explained mm -hmm. that basic concept. I love that. And I also think that to take the, the confusing nature out of orthographic mapping, that's orthographic mapping. That's how kids learn that automaticity by understanding that core and then also applying those same rules and noticing it in other places and it becomes more automatic. And I think that there are a number of people who really struggle with that concept, but yeah. that is where, uh, you know, it's been described in so many different ways, but that's how kids get that boost to reading. They, they kind of come to that one, that one leap and they start to recognize that these little pieces, oh, I recognize that word in this, I recognize that word in this. Mm -hmm. 
And then additionally, if you have a struggling reader who's not making that connection and yet you've taught several times, it might be because they're mapping on a different part of their brain. And that is sort of like the demystification of dyslexia is that they're mapping it in a part of their brain that's not visual, right? That's right. So and, I, I'm sorry, go on. I, I was just going to say, so I think in that piece, if a kid is starting to not recognize it in, in the visual sense, or they're only recognizing it in the visual sense and not putting the sounds together, make it multisensory. And right. so once you see a, a kid struggling with that, they might not be able to do it where, where surface level, lots of the kids in the classroom can do it, but add in a manipulative with it. And then that's how you kind of see the progress. That's so, exactly right. You used a really important word, the word noticing. Uh, too often I go into phonics lessons and they're very passive. They're very sort of skill and drillish. Great phonics instruction involves conversation, involves talk. They should be active. They should be interactive. They should be thought provoking. So students are doing thinking and talking about words. And the more I can get my students to make their thinking public about what they notice about words and about uh, the concepts I'm teaching, the better equipped I am at meeting their specific needs. And, and the concepts that they haven't mastered. So I want to talk a little bit about conceptual leaps because this is something that we don't often consider in phonics. If you take a look at a typical scope and sequence in kindergarten, for example, we learn those basic letter sounds, one letter, one sound, S, A, A, and so on. So students are reading two and three letter words like cat and uh, run and hop and so on. The next skill on most scope and sequences is final E or silent E or magic E, whatever, whatever people call it. That is such an enormous conceptual leap because all of a sudden for months and months and months, students are one letter, one sound. And then the next skill they learn, there are two letters that work together as a team. So the vowel says its name, but they're not even beside each other in the word. Like it's, it's almost brutal, <laughs> you know, how difficult that is, which is why when I make these conceptual leaps, I want to make the new learning as obvious as possible. So I go from the known to the new. I will put a word they know like hat on the board and we will read that. Underneath it, I will write the word hate that has final E and we'll, we'll look at it and we'll talk about it. What looks different? What sounds different? It's so obvious when you see a word you know and just that extra E added that that E is working. It's doing something very powerfully. So conceptually, I can help my students understand that because it's so clear and so obvious. Often we don't do that. We just, you know, finish the CBC work and we jump to final and we put a bunch of words and children don't necessarily make that connection. So when I go to long vowels, I will go from like set to seat or, or mat to meet. And so they, they see the power of that team. And we, if we're going to multisyllabic words, you know, taking a word they know like can, and going to candle. So they only have to focus on that new piece of information. It makes these new concepts so easy when you introduce it going from the known to the new. So it's a little baby step and it's a more obvious step than what a lot of children have access to in the instruction they're provided. I'm gonna just do another swing back to one of our other previous episodes about spelling tests and why spelling tests that have a lot of different um, words that don't have relationships with one another are not helpful for students. So when I give a, 
um, any of my students a, a, a whole spelling list. All of those words are really specific. Sometimes they're not even known words. They can be nonsense words too, but they have to have that same taught obvious pattern in it so that you can notice whether or not they're struggling. And that's how we figure out if students are making mastery progress or not making mastery progress. Mm -hmm. And I love that you are talking about the obvious because um, you can't make assumptions. Our brains as adults work so differently than children's brains. And I think it's really important it's not giving the answer to children when you're doing that. You need to give them a sense of ownership in their learning and let them make those connections and share that with you, having a safe space to share that information with you. So thank you so much for bringing that to light. So much of it is automatic. I think we forget how we first wrote words. We didn't know how to spell them. We thought about each individual sound and attach a spelling to that sound and slowly work through the word. That's why dictation, which is guided spelling, where you're talking through the words is so powerful for, for our, young, our young students and needs to, more of it needs to be done. But we, we sometimes forget what, it's, what it felt like or the process of learning uh, because it's so automatic to us. Well, uh, we talk a lot about metacognition uh, on our episodes. And so um, I love that you encourage that with the students because, yeah, we found that even the most struggling reader and the lowest reader can really start to yeah. observe things, make connections, um, start to notice and pick up new patterns and things like that. And it sounds like that almost came from your own learning of remembering from Mrs. Warshaw that you remembered your own phonics instruction. That is really cool. Say one thing about spelling. I don't give spelling lists. I, I have children write cumulative sentences because spelling takes so much longer to master. I want to, I want to take the long view. So if I have a spelling assessment, you know, we do dictation, which is the guided spelling and the conversation and we're using supports like sound boxes and tapping and doing whatever we need to do. But when I give a sort of formal assessment, I use sentences and, Every sentence will have at least one word with a new skill and lots of words with previously taught skills. So if I look at the sentences week after week, I can track when students are starting to um, accurately and, and uh, consistently apply those spelling patterns to their writing. And I look at that in addition to the students' writing. So I will periodically look at the students' writers' notebooks or wherever they're keeping their pieces and saying, what skills have I taught already? And finding evidence of, of that consistent and accurate uh, use of those skills. So I think spelling, we need a longer, more cumulative view than sort of a, I, I feel, I say this all the time, I feel like we take such a narrow sort of one and done kind of look at phonics. You know, we focus on it one week, we move on, and we, we, don't, uh, we don't take that long view and we don't build in all that extra work. We have too many students who the learning begins to decay. And you know, I talk a lot about that in my, and my books that that's one of the biggest issues around phonics lesson is they they might have a pretty good grasp of it that week that you're focusing on it but if there isn't enough work on it it starts to slip away and so even my assessments are cumulative so i look at it over time i don't know if they've mastered it after a week i know if you know six weeks later they can read words and write words of that skill that that's true mastery so the long view is really important in phonics instruction not the short view the difference between teaching and learning. Yeah. We taught it versus when the students learned it. Yeah. I think also it makes um, differentiated instruction so much easier because when I think of, you know, the more advanced students in the class who 
can also have that decay as well because they think, oh, I've already memorized this word. I know how to do this. And then they get into multisyllabic words and they are just totally lost and their spelling is terrible. So if you can challenge them in that way, you really need to make sure that um, you know, dictation is, is solid and important and they can really speak to it. And you know, I think we talk a lot about how we encourage kids to use math and explain their thinking, but the same is really true in reading as well. Yeah. Um, and we have to keep encouraging the metacognition. Uh, so yeah, I, I have to just you know, say that again and again, because I think especially in those foundational years, um, there are kids who come into kindergarten and first grade and are very adept readers because they've practiced a lot, but they have also memorized a lot. And so then their skills, and they haven't had formal instruction. So those foundational skills are really important. And I'm speaking from experience because while I work with struggling readers all the time, my daughter happens to be a really skilled reader, but not a great speller. So yesterday we just happened to pick up a tray and with some magnetic letters and you know she's on like the 300 uh, level sight words. And so I just started picking them up and I said, okay, let's spell it. And she can start to, uh, you know, articulate it, but get having that one-on-one -on -one time and really making her accountable for her learning is important because in first grade, they're working on words that are easier for her right now. Right. And I don't want her to have that learned. I don't need to tune in at this point um, conversation. One of the things that I'm doing a lot of work now on is how to provide whole group phonics lessons that are differentiated. Too many teachers think of phonics as the differentiation happens in small group time. It also has to happen in whole group. So you have students at that whole group lesson who really aren't quite there. So what, what are they going to get from that lesson? Or how do you, how do you um, modify your expectations for the content load that you're going to hold them responsible for? So if I have, you know, 20 words that we're blending, maybe I only hold them accountable for five to 10, you know, a smaller set. Or if I'm doing a, a word sort and it's, it's just, it's going to be overwhelming and there are 10 words, I may only have them sort four. Or if it's a story we're reading and they're not quite there, maybe I'll have them listen to it first and do some pre-work during small group where we'll do some echo or core reading and talk. You know, there, there are all these scaffolds that can be in place. If I have students like your daughter who this is, this is a, a review in terms of her reading, you know, we're going to do more work in the spelling, the dictation, the word building and all that, which is going to help her. But I'm, I might have some more sophisticated words in my lessons just for her. So in the blending lines, I might do some more sophisticated words. In the word sorts, I'm going to give her a few extra challenge words and so on and so on. There's so many ways in every single part of a phonics lesson that we haven't differentiated and we need to start doing that. So every child benefits from it. It also minimizes frustration, you know, it minimizes anxiety that some of those children have or the boredom that some of them have. They're, they know they're getting something new, fresh, meaningful, purposeful for them. And that's our, an area we need to do far more work on in phonics. In our previous episode, Mary gave a great example of, uh, we were talking about the reading letter, and she gave a great example about um, if you're teaching the vowel patterns um, of the long A, that maybe at the lowest level of the reading letter, they might just have the AI words. That's but right. then at the second level, they might be sorting AI and AY. But right. then at those green levels of the reading letter, they maybe could handle... Um, the A magic key and the AI and the AY. 
And right. so I love that. Um, I want to circle back to conceptual leaps because sure. you talked about the one letter, one sound mm -hmm. with those um, high utility consonants and vowels. And then once you feel, once you've noticed that they've mastered those, then you move to that long vowel with the one letter, two sounds. Where do you go after that? Well, in a scope and sequence. Yeah, you spend a lot of time after you do your short vowels, CVC, all that, you spend a lot of time with your final E and your long vowel spellings. And some students will really start to slow down or hit a wall there because it's there's so many spellings for a particular sound. So this is where these conversations come into play even more. So if you're doing long A, which you were just talking about with A, I, and A, Y, and you're doing a sort, for example, a lot of times I'll see a sort done and it's an independent activity and kids are moving words into piles and they're done. That's not going to help them. When you are sorting A, I, and A words like rain, train, and then you're doing play, say, stay, there's something that should happen after that sort, a conversation about what you notice about those patterns that can actually help you when you're writing words. So you should notice that AI never appears at the end of a word. So if you're writing the word play for the first time and you're thinking, you write the letter P, you write the letter A, and that last sound is A, and you've learned two spellings, AI and AY, and you've had the sort, and you've had the conversation, AI can't appear at the end, you make a really accurate, well-informed decision to use AY instead of AI. That's the power of these conversations. And children need so much support during that time to figure out when to use different spellings, number one. And that requires not only the conversation, but seeing lots of words with those different patterns. So they become really familiar with, with, the, with uh, lots of words uh, using those spellings. So that can, can be a wall. And then you're getting into your more complex vowels, which can have even more spelling. So you're just slowly increasing the complexity. And let, here again, it might take longer for them to get to those. I know in first grade, at the end of the year, we tend to do a lot of the complex vowel work. You know, the art controlled vowels and the diphthongs and things like that. And then children leave for the summer. And so I know as a second grade teacher that that's probably not mastered for many of them. So, the, you know, those are things I'm going to have to hit really hard in, in the beginning of second grade. But then you can start transitioning to multisyllabic words. One of the things I think is really important to begin working on the second half of grade one is breaking the habit of just looking at one letter, one sound, or, or one spelling, one sound, and starting to look at bigger chunks of words. Because as we're slowly moving to multisyllabic words, we don't want students to see a big word and you know work through it. Like the, I always use the word unexpected. If they see that word written, I don't want them to go up uh, the X, but I want them to see pieces of it should pop out, like the UN, the prefix, or the ED, the suffix, and so on. So training their eye, that's why I like doing in the second half of grade one, speed sorts. You were working with these patterns, you know, separating AI and AY, but now we have all these AI spelling patterns like AIN, AIL, what have you. Now let's do a speed sort where they have to see a bigger chunk and they start noticing larger chunks. And that's just a transitional phase to moving them into studying multisyllabic words where we want them to notice larger pieces of information so it's easier for them to tackle those words. There's a lot we could be doing conceptually to make these, these leaps easier. I agree. And I think that the, the piece that you keep bringing up to is like helping kids notice it. So first, allowing them to sort those words, build those words, segment those words. And I think using your hands to do that is really important, not just paper, pencil tasks, but actually moving chunks, moving yeah. um, pieces of 
paper around. And it could also be on the computer, but I would like to say that it shouldn't always be a computer sort. It shouldn't, because I feel like our students often have a visual generated first before they have an auditory. And that is not how many adults learn to read. Yeah. So we need to make sure that we are really being thoughtful and careful about making sure that they can generate that visual on their own first, not the way that maybe a computer would do that for them or a, a screen would do that for them. Um, and then additionally, you know, while you're reading through text, you can also do just a quick finger swipe and say, who can find the word, blah, blah, blah. If you have, um, you know, a highlighter available and, and they're able to highlight those, that's another way of doing it. But it, it also can involve rich text, but it can't just be a decodable text. It can't just be a word sort. It can't just be this. You have to keep those conversations um, obvious. I really like that you were saying the word obvious because kids need multiple opportunities to do that. So. I also think from the very beginning, we want to create a, an atmosphere where there's a curiosity about words. Because as we move up the grades, that curiosity is really going to pay off because now we're looking at word chunks, not only to sound it out, but to get at meaning. And then we can do all these sort of fun, generative springboard type activities with chunks that have meaning. And it just gets, it gets more and more engaging. And you just know so much about English and how it works. And it, it demystifies, as, as one of you said earlier, it demystifies some of what feels so complex when you're first learning how to read and write, especially write. That makes it fun, which yeah. struggling readers are not used to reading being fun. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think phonics is a lot of fun, obviously, but uh, I wish it was more fun in some of the classrooms I visit. Well, we yeah, get totally Oh, go ahead, Mary. I was going to say, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, making it seem playful and using game pieces and making sure that they are using kid-friendly material, not downplay material, not making it babyish at all, but really making it playful. Yep. Um, all right. Sorry, Shannon. Go, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's okay. I want to ask you a couple of rapid fire uh, scope and secrets questions um, before we revisit some other things that you kind of touched on um, in the discussion. So when would you teach consonant digraphs like the TH and the SH? I, I do those in, in early first grade. Okay. Um, and so when they're at the kind of between the like one letter, one sound, one letter, two sounds. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about soft C and G? I do that mid first grade when I'm doing final E mm -hmm. uh, because there are a lot of common patterns like ice, ice. and race. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that it's just a natural for it. That's I think I got that from your books. That's yeah. the same. What about the vowel sounds of Y? Uh, second half of first grade. Yeah, okay. I typically do those. I, you know, for me, again, it's all about utility. When are my students going to need these skills in their reading and writing and how much content for each sound I want to slowly layer on. So I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to overload it. I'll do some more common ones first and then get to those. But yeah, second and first grade for sure. And you're always noticing, like you said, like when are they ready for it and when will they need it? I remember you said that in a workshop I attended that you were constantly looking at the text and yeah. what they might need to read. Yes, I, I, I get so frustrated when teachers hide information from students when they like, you know, put big post-its over things on the classroom. And I'm like, they're children who are ready. You know, if, if a child is ready for that skill you just said, before I get to it, I'm going to 
work with them on it. You know, I'm going to point it out. You know, the, if as a child like me who started noticing these things and running with it, let him run with it. So don't hide information. If they ask it, if they need it, yeah. I think teachers get really caught up on assessing. And so, um, and, and sometimes administrators push this too. Oh, don't show them that information if you're not assessing it. But that's not necessarily true. They won't get so confused. You know, they're more confused about, oh, why is this a secret? <laughs> you know, I, I think that when, the, especially when you have those kids, they are like, why is that a secret? Why is this one the part? So, you know, I think being honest and saying like, he, oh, I'm so glad you noticed that. This is this word. And yes, it has this pattern. And you spend, you know, 30 seconds going over what the rule is. Yep. And then you move on and you redirect the attention to yep. what your, your lesson is about. Yeah, you, you don't hold them accountable for it, but you share that information. If they can use it, that's great. If they're ready to use it, that's wonderful. If they're not, you'll address it when you get to it. But yeah. And then the other flip side of that is like holding back some things and not throwing too much at a student if you know that they can't handle it yet. You have to, the pacing is really important. Yeah. I guess that's why it is called scope and sequence. It's kind of both of those words together. This episode of the Reading Teacher Sound is sponsored by our new Patreon. Patreon is a platform where you can join the Reading Teacher Sound's professional learning community and study and work with us. Everyone who joins will receive behind-the-scenes info into the podcast and an episode directory with photos, graphics, and resource links for all the seasons. There are five levels of collaboration and support to choose from, with various benefits that include a private Facebook group, bonus episodes each month, a quarterly data review and unit planning Zoom calls, bi-weekly lesson planning sessions where we can provide group support for your instruction, Reading Teachers Lounge branded merchandise like a coffee mug or a tote bag. And the highest level of support includes book studies with us and private calls for one-on-one support. You can find more information by visiting www.patreon.com backslash Reading Teachers Lounge. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash Reading Teachers Lounge. You can also check out the link in our show notes. Everyone who joins in September will enjoy founding member status, and you'll receive a printed copy of our special episode directory in the mail. Again, visit www.patreon.com backslash Reading Teachers Lounge. We really hope you'll join us and learn alongside with us. So how did you learn all of this? Like, how did you develop your knowledge of best practices? Was it from Harvard or the jobs you've had? Yeah, my fear of not knowing how to teach led me to, to I wanted to say Jean Chaw, who at the time was, you know, the goddess of reading. She was like the encyclopedia of reading. And she, she you know, laid it out there. And then after I finished grad school, I got to work for five years with Marilyn Adams. And this was 90 to 95 when her book came out, uh, Beginning to Read, Thinking, Learning About Print, which was a, a landmark book. And it was like being in grad school for five more years. And she was so generous with her knowledge. And then I got to, you know, work with Louisa Motes and Isabel Beck and John Scheffelbein and Tim Shannon and all these people have done, who had done so much thinking and work in this area. And it really sparked, <clears throat> because I had all these conversations with them, I knew some of the things that were unanswered. And so it allowed me to start doing my own research to answer those questions whether it was for my own benefit with students I was working with or whether it was 
uh, for if I was doing something to help a publisher and they had questions and I didn't have the answer, I would do the research. And so that was quite wonderful. Um, even as a, a beginning teacher, I did many research studies. I think teachers forget that they have the power to do that. When I was teaching in Maryland, I was teaching the second, third grade combination class. And there was a rule in the district that you couldn't formally teach spelling until children were reading at grade two. And it made no sense to me. Intuitively, it made no sense to me. And I had these second graders who were, I had the bottom 30 students. So the, the second graders weren't reading at a second grade level. And not only did I didn't think this was, this was, this made sense to me, but they were seeing all their second grade peers doing spelling and thought it was a really cool thing. So there was a there was a, an emotional motivational issue there, and so I asked the the principal if I could do a study looking at the impact of including formal spelling instruction with these students. So we did like the dictation and the word building, and we had the assessments and all of that. And I kept very clear um, data collection on it, and we were able to get the district to see that policy differently. So there are things that you can do, these mini studies, if you have the support of your administrators in a controlled setting where you can start answering some of your questions as well. So I always had that mindset because it was my fear. Like, it's so important what we do. <clears throat> this teaching, reading, it, 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 doing it well, it opens up the door of possibility for children. It's a, an enormous responsibility to do it right and to do it well. I, I always say, in the groups that I that I've talked with, I think giving the gift of reading is one of the greatest gifts we can give children, because it's a gift once given, it can never be taken away, but will forever transform a child's life. What we do is literally transformative. I think teachers forget that that we are open to, opening up the door of possibility. So I want to do it as right and as well as possible early on. So I'm always asking those questions and trying to figure out, and teachers can do some of that work also. I think that's super helpful because it never really occurred to me, like, of course, in grad school, I learned about, you know, educational research, but it doesn't have to be um, a really difficult scientific process. Yeah. It really needs to be clear data collection, a really clear, you know, problem addressing how you're going to solve it and showing the data yeah. and presenting it in a meaningful way. I, I think that's really powerful. I, I had not actually thought of that when I was teaching. And of course, you know, many teachers often feel like, oh, I can't have one more thing on my plate. But if you're already struggling with it, if you're already doing all of it, um, this is thinking smarter, not harder. And right. I think that, it, that it's a way of solving some problems. And I think it's also a way that we struggle with as ed educators for, um, our, our way of being recognized as professionals and um, many people who have gone through graduate school and, and multiple thing, uh, you know, multiple educational paths, you probably do have the skills to do it. You just need the confidence to go forth and actually do it. Um, so I appreciate you saying that because I think that's a nugget that many teachers can take away, whether it's working on decodable texts, whether it's spelling, whether it's, um, you know, using word sorts or using manipulatives or phonemic awareness. Mm -hmm. All of those are hot topics right now, and they're all part of the science of reading, and they all are highly beneficial for students. So you can show that in your classroom, I think. I agree. That's such a powerful example. And I, I, I really resonate when you said, you know, you knew that gut feeling when you were teaching that, that class that that wasn't right and that those students deserved to be able to spell and learn spelling. And um, that's how I found your books is I was mandated to do a scripted program that 
I tried it with fidelity. It didn't work. I had that uncomfortable feeling in my stomach and I'm like, there's a better way because the, the program I was mandated to do didn't have that metacognition piece. It was just, this is the way things are sounded out. And because I said so, and it didn't encourage any thinking from the students. Wow. And I saw them not making progress because they were constantly waiting for you to give them the next thing. And so um, I that, love that I, empowering the teachers to be able to like listen to themselves. And this is a way to enact change when certain things are mandated, whatever side of the pendulum it's on, right. how can you do what's right for your students? Well, that's why like the last decade, my 10 reasons why phonics instruction sometimes fails has become so important for my work because so many districts were saying we have phonics instructional materials we've trained our teachers we have assessments on paper it, it should work we're doing everything everybody told us why isn't it working and so then when i started digging in i started seeing these unnecessary obstacles and once we started unplugging those then we can then we can move forward more quickly and here again that's going back to our fine tuning there there's there's nothing that's perfect you know that a curriculum if you get a uh, package program, what have you, it's a tool. And you have to understand the tool and use it in the best way possible. And there are lots of tools out there that are highly touted that you know, even in New York City are being used, but they have known flaws, they have known issues. And so we have to, we have to, and that's a conversation I have with principals all the time. You want them, the teachers to use it with fidelity, yes, to understand the program, but how long should they do that if we know it has flaws X, Y, and Z? that we need to fix. When, when is the right time to start address? Should a, should a child have to suffer through a program with some serious flaws for an entire year? No. So, and that's a really difficult question to answer. The question of fidelity is, is important to a lot of people. Understanding the ins and outs of a program, but also recognizing it's a tool that is not perfect. And it's not perfect for every child. And how do we take it and modify it when it needs to be, and how do we add in other things and what have you. Those discussions are really, really important for that tool to be high impact. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna tap in really quickly, excuse me, but I think that this is really important. And if there are any other advocates that are listening or parents who sit in on IEP meetings who feel really strongly that they're, the program that is being taught has flaws in it, it's important to partner with teachers. It's important to partner with um, administrators. And if you pick up um, Wiley Levin's book, you can actually go through and say, okay, this I think is the area where we're struggling. How can we address it in this area? Or I know that this is a tool that's used in this school, but it's not working well for my kids. So how can we address it in this way? And I think using language that is partnering rather than shutting it down is so key and essential. And if you just dig your heels in and say, absolutely not, no way, I can't stand Lucy Calkins or whatever it is, um, it doesn't go very far. Mm -hmm. There are some really nuanced ways of doing that because Lucy Calkins is brilliant in her own right. In a lot of ways, she's a really wonderful um, educator and has a lot of really good resources. There are some flaws with her program we can point out what some of those flaws are. She can point out what some of those flaws are even to this point. And I think we need to just be a little bit more flexible in realizing that not all kids are going to progress with the same programs in the exact same way. It's Data such, can prove it. Yeah, it's such an important point. One of the most common things around phonics instruction is the, the materials have far too little reading and writing, far too little application. 
I was talking about it's in the application with the learning sticks. That's an obvious flaw when I look at a material. If kids aren't reading and writing every day in a phonics lesson, I know they aren't gonna make the progress they need. So that is an, an easy thing for me to go in and help correct, help modify. For me, that's not a fidelity issue. It's a, it's a knowledge of how we accelerate learning issue. They need more application opportunities. So that, that's, a, that's a thing, like what you said, you could go in and say, my child isn't getting enough reading and writing during these lessons, I would love more decodable text, or whatever, that would really benefit my child. Can we make, or if you're a teacher, my students, can we make these modifications? Yeah. I think that's important. I was gonna bring up Lucy Calkins too. So like, cause I was in a, you know, units of study um, school a couple of years ago and, I noticed that I really liked a lot of the writing lessons, it, although my coworker was like, she's a little too whimsical for my taste. Um, but um, I noticed that there Just wasn't remember, enough. You can't please everybody. Right. You're not target, you know, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> but there wasn't enough explicit grammar. There wasn't enough explicit phonics. There wasn't enough explicit spelling. And so I did add those, um, I didn't call it that, but they were the application opportunities. Like yeah. I added dictation. Yeah. I added a mini lesson of phonics that was just five to 10 minutes that really, and then I also added more to my small groups. Um, Cause we also at the same time had Fountas and Pinal. We were doing level literacy, literacy initiative. And I used those books. I used them more as decodable books rather than predictable text. And I um, added my own phonics piece to it rather than what they had recommended. And that was enough to tweak the program where I felt like I was doing it with enough fidelity, but was also meeting my students' needs. Right. Um, but I think also like what you talked about, what you did is that you have to have that data collection to prove, you know, what you're doing, like to track what you're doing. And then you have that like, you know, um, beginning of year, mid-year, and end of year data to back up and like kind of prove, you know, I knew this was going to work and now the data has showed <laughs> that it worked. And then the next year I had more trust for my administrators. Like, okay, you can go off a little bit on your own tangent because we know that you're doing what exactly. the students need. Yep. So, um, well, do you have any other suggestions for teachers? Like if they are in some of those districts that have um, some mandated things that maybe aren't aligned um, with science of reading practices, how can they kind of meld well, best instruction for students? One of the biggest issues has been the lack of decodable text with the phonics instruction in kindergarten and first grade. And there are a lot of districts I've visited who only have leveled books. So they're looking for decodable text. They're not exactly sure how to use them. They don't know what to do with the existing text that they have. And so I, and I can send you this chart, and this is something some of the coaches here in New York City started using. In fact, they sort of ran with it, which has helped me understand how I can use it better. But I created a, a chart with the guided reading levels, and then I layered on a systematic scope and sequence. So what the, what we're gonna hold students accountable. I'm unmuting a clap. I want this thing so bad. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, so like if it's level, let's say E, and we were focusing on finally or whatever, that that was what we were going to hold children accountable for. So what that meant was, as we found decodable texts, we were going to start with those decodable texts at that level, and then move into our leveled books, which are less controlled. And we examined all the books at that level for the skill we were working on, as well as looking at the previously taught skills. And the ones that matched the best, they will never be as controlled as a decodable text. But the ones that reinforce the skills the best are the ones we kept in that level. Now we would find books that were, let's say a level F, but they had lots of long vowels. 
So it wasn't going to long it wasn't going to work for that level. We we pulled them out of level F and used them for our independent reading boxes when they got to the levels where we were looking on long vowels. Because so, technically they were lower levels, so that children could handle them in terms of all of those criteria independently, but they also had lots of words to reinforce the skills we were focusing on at that level. So we were able to move books around and use, and I know teachers are doing other things with those level books, you know, using them as writing prompts and rewriting, lots of other great things are circulating now, but we had to re-examine the books, these instructional tools. And so move around some of those level books so that they better match what our phonics goals were and then start to include more phonics text. So part of the problem that a lot of schools are facing is that you know, a, a text is only decodable based on the scope and sequence it's compared to. And so many sets of decodable texts have different scope and sequences. So if you have a decodable text from company X, they have one set of books. It's not enough books for a child to read during that particular week. So a lot of uh, teachers are really struggling getting enough reading for their students. So, you know, I've been encouraging publishers, you know, you have set A, do some additional sets, and maybe there's a set that's more nonfiction focused or whatever, do some additional sets. So there are lots and lots of books for reinforcing these skills. And also there are other things that teachers will do, like we'll create, we can't write stories every week, but we can create what I call accountable text sentences, you know, maybe five sentences where there are words with the, the target skill and words with the high frequency words we're working on and some pretty, you know, we construct them ourselves and that's easy enough to do. So that's, you know, I could use that in a lesson when I don't have an additional book. I can use my accountable sentences. You know, I can write five sentences quickly, print it out or put it on chart paper, whatever. There are workarounds that we're trying to, to find so that children are doing significantly more reading um, as we're transitioning to looking at the tools we have, especially for those schools that don't have enough little decodables to match those those phonics skills. And what's really interesting, if you teach it well and they get lots of practice and they understand the generative nature of the system, they start weaning themselves. You see this a lot in mid-first grade. They're, they get the confidence, they have enough skills under the belt that they're really eager to pick up a book that we might think is a little bit harder and start attacking that book and start learning other skills and so on. It, it's really fun when you see that that confidence is so strong. And I think these decodables, even though they're not Shakespeare, <laughs> they do serve a really important function in terms of fluency using those skills in reading, but also building a child's confidence that they can attack a text. They have the tools they need to, to, to uh, get through that text. And that confidence can really pay off. That is so, that's a really powerful takeaway for teachers, like what you just, that whole process you just described, because I have unfortunately seen some teachers just throw away all their level text, mm -hmm. because they've heard Fountas and Pinnell is not aligned to science of reading, and they're gone, and I, I love what you're saying, is that it takes work on the front end, but if you do a text analysis and notice that this level F book has a lot of long vowels, treat it like a level G or H or wherever it is in your scope and sequence. It can be used at another time. And then there are so many more books for the students. It's just the way you use them. This is my frustration besides a reading conversation, how people are being so extreme. You know, it's right or wrong. It's black and white. It's yes or no. Toss it out. You know, what have you. It's not reality. You know, schools have spent, you know, tens of hundreds of thousands of dollars on books. So it's a tool. And how do we use the tool in the best way possible and what will benefit our students in the best way possible? That might involve rethinking where that tool is used. 
in our scope and sequence and what have you, and that's okay. This is super powerful because I think that it's, I've, I've known a lot of teachers, especially Orton-Gillingham trained people mm -hmm. who have um, just created their own decodable texts again and again. It's really difficult to reinvent the wheel all the time, but you don't actually have to. There is plenty of text to go around. You just have to be willing to be flexible and prescriptive in how you're addressing what your student needs at that point. And I really like how you said, too, you can allow students to reach a little bit higher mm -hmm. because you can also give them the tools to decide whether this word is more challenging or, hey, this didn't really make sense to me. And giving them some insight into their own reading, um, I think that is really important, too. And I think sometimes realizing, even as a first grader, realizing like, oh, huh, this word was much trickier. I'm going to kind of pretend to read it. But then when they get back to a text that is an independent level for them or an instructional level for them, they have confidence already because they're like, oh, no, I can actually read this one a little bit better. Kids yeah. get confident in different ways. So thank you so much for that. Whenever I'm working with a young reader that I haven't encountered before, let's say, if, you know, a teacher calls me in or what have you, the very first thing I do is I hand them a book. And we open up to that first page and I see what they do. Do they put their finger on that first word and start working through? Or do they just spend lots of time studying the pictures? Like, what do they think reading is? And what habits have we developed? And that's very telling for me in terms of a starting point, meeting their needs. We, we forget that the books have so much impact on how children approach reading and what they think reading is. If they can sound out most of the words and that's the most reliable strategy. You know, I always say that humans are lazy by nature. We like the path of least resistance. So if most of the words can be sounded out. That's what we're going to do. If most of the words we have to guess at and use pictures or memorize the pattern, that's what we're going to do. And that becomes our habit. And that's what we think reading is. And so we have to be very careful in those first, you know, first year, year and a half, how we set up what reading is what's going to be most reliable for students. I think that's a really powerful statement. I've never heard it explained exactly that way, but I think that's really powerful because um, you're right. Students are going to do what they believe reading is. And sometimes reading is looking at the pictures and, you know, absorbing the illustrations. And sometimes that is appropriate. And when you're doing a decodable text, that's not the appropriate thing. What we want you to do is, is approach the book in a, in a specific studious way. Um, but you can only do that through observation. You can only really get to know a student and a reader on an individual level if you are giving them that space and wait time to show you what they do and know. Exactly. Yeah. And we talked earlier about like you know, the deep responsibility and also joy we get of teaching kids how to read and how powerful that is. And what it sounds like you're saying, Wiley, is that it's also, we have to be very mindful of the text that we are choosing, that yeah. that's almost as important as our lesson plan, is well, what materials are we using and what text are we using with those readers? It's interesting. In, in 1985, there's a, a study that came out that's quoted a lot, the Jewel Roper Schneider study. And what they found is that the kinds of texts we give our beginning readers actually exerts a far more powerful influence on the reading strategies they develop than what we do instructionally. So I started teaching in the mid-80s, and this had a huge impact on my thinking because what it meant is I can do a great phonics lesson, 
But if I give students then a book where they can't use those skills to sound that words and they have to do other things, it minimizes the impact of my phonics work and it teaches them that reading is something different than what it really is and it's not gonna be as powerful. So, you know, I hear a lot of people <clears throat> talking about the queuing systems and things like that. The reality is it's the text that determines the cues you have to read as a child. If I can sound out the words, that's my go-to. If I can't, I'm gonna to have to do other things. The text exerts a far more, uh, it's far more impactful than what we even consider. Because that's the application that you were talking about, that application opportunity. It, it that's where the learning sticks. Yes, it can diminish your phonics work or it can enhance it. Um, and so we have to be super careful about these learning tools that we use and how, how students are processing what reading is and the amount of practice they get with the skills we need them to master quickly. I think that, um, you know, a lot of times we like headlines and we like things to be, you know, easy, quick information grabs. And in this case, we sort of, if you, if you kind of subscribe to that, you forget the breadth and how complex reading really is. And, and it, we know that it is a rocket science. You know, we, it's been explained that way many times. And um, I think that this conversation is really powerful to remember. And I think that's why Shannon and I have kind of come back to don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, there, are, there are some nuggets of information in all of this. You just have to make sure that you're doing it um, in a way that is best for the student. Yeah, I, nuanced conversations would be wonderful. <laughs> and that's not always what we hear on social media or what have you. So if you take the decodable text, for an example, I'll just give two very quick examples. One of the things I sometimes hear is that the decodable text needs to be 100% controlled for phonics. So there's no research that says that, zero. And it doesn't make sense logically because some of the most common words in the English language like the, which is the most common, or said, or was, or who, or they, words that children need to master very early on are irregular. They don't follow the common phonics skills that we teach. Children need to master those. They need to be in the early books that children read. That's number one. Uh, number two is that Decodable texts, the way they're created by the publishers, is really dictated by two states, the states of California and Texas, who have criteria in their state adoption, um, their state adoption mandates of what the decodable text should look like. And a lot of people don't know this, but the criteria is that about 75 to 80% of the words should be fully sounded out, which means about three out of every four words, children should be able to sound out using their phonics skills. The other 20 to 25%, about one out of every four words can be a high frequency word that's irregular or story word to make an interesting story. If you can't sound those out, how are you gonna approach those words? This is where all those other things you're talking about, you know, we look at pieces of the word, then we do look at the pictures and see, and we ask what makes sense and all of that comes into play. So we are using other cues when we read decodable text by the very definition of how they're created. It's just that we're focusing primarily on the visual and that's what's gonna have the impact in terms of students getting mastery of these basic phonics skills and that's super important. But a lot of people in this conversation around the science reading have no idea that that's even happening. And this is where I get really scared of these sort of black, white, yes, no, do this, don't do that, because it's not reality. That's very enlightening, thank you. Um, I knew about California and Texas with like textbooks, you know, but I didn't realize that they had that kind of um, 
influence over the decodable books as well. Fact, so I guess their own scope and sequence is kind of dictating how the decodable texts are created yeah, they don't as really well. Give, they don't give a scope and sequence, but they do have what skills should be covered at a particular grade, and that certainly heavily influences what's being created. You know, one of the, the first studies I did back in 2000, the whole reason I did that study was Texas and California for the first time had come out with this criteria. At the time, California said 75% decodable, Texas said 80, and I was helping out a publisher, and they're like, why is it different? And I was like, I don't know. I've never read any research. So I went up to Harvard to visit Jean Chaw, my, my former professor, and I asked her, I said, I can't find this research, and I'm very nervous. I, gotta, I have to give them an answer. She's like, there is no research. And I said, well, why did one say 71 say They made it up. <laughs> you know, they just, they defined what majority was for them. So it wasn't you know, completely out of there, but it's just like, there's no research. And so I said, well, what do I do? She said, well, number one, you have to do the research if you want the answer to that. And number two, the publishers have to do what the states say, but you have to continue to study this because just because it's, you know, it's a mandate, if it's not based on research and we don't look at the, the, the nuances of it, we could put something in place that's really great and it turns out to be something not terribly effective. And that's actually happened. Because of these percentages, publishers have become so focused on the, the number of decodable words, they become competitive. So there are publishers like, well, we have 95 or we have 100. And then you get these texts that don't make sense. They don't sound like English. They're very poor texts. Teachers hate them and they won't use the books. So you, know, you run the risk if you don't understand the nuances of this tool of using it or creating a tool in a way that is so problematic that you've erased the benefit of the entire tool or concept to begin with. And that's where we are right now. So I did another study where I looked at all the mistakes in decodable text, all the problems. There were seven big issues that I saw from publishers and I've been working with publishers to revise and rework their text so that A, they sound like English, B, they make sense, See, they have great stories and they avoid all of these issues that actually make them really difficult to understand for a child. You know, we read these texts to work on our phonics skills, but it's all about meaning making. And we want stories that we can read and want to reread to build fluency and want to talk about and want to write about. So I think we have to have a higher bar for the instructional tools we use with children. For whatever reason, the bar for decodables has been very low. The bar is very high for level books. They're gorgeous books. It's been very, very low for decodables and I'm working really hard to raise that bar. I want decodable books that are as exciting and as beautiful and as well-written as any other little learning tool that a child will encounter in kindergarten or first grade. And I hope that teachers you know, hold publishers accountable for it. This is not good enough. This is not pretty enough. This is whatever you know, push back and those changes will occur. There are some publishers who've been really receptive to, for me helping them revise these stories so that they are better tools and interesting books to read and to talk about and write about. We appreciate that you, you're still working so closely with students and with teachers in real schools and you have the ear of the publisher that you can enact these changes that we all Yeah, need. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> One man mission. <laughs> but reading's not a numbers game. You know, stories matter. Quality of story, con you know, all that matters. And so we have we can't forget that. Yeah, um, we're human storytellers just still sitting by the fire wanting to be told a story deep so, down. Yeah, an 80 is not better than a 75 necessarily if I can't understand the 80% decodable. <laughs>
that scripted program I used, it had like some story about a tramp who was standing by a lamp who had a stamp. And I mean, it was just the worst incredible story you could possibly imagine. I don't like that. (laughs) The kids were like, what's a tramp? You know, I mean, they were like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> and it, I mean, like, it meant like the, you know, like a hobo kind of one. Yeah. yeah but still. still. <laughs> well, this is a dual meaning word. And <laughs> right. Just. Okay. Um, I want to go back a little bit to conceptual leaps one more time. Is there just any other conceptual leap that you feel like, you know, teachers really need to understand about readers as they're thinking about scope and sequence, as they're looking at these decodable texts or analyzing the other books that they're giving to students? Like, what should they be looking for? Anytime you go from one concept, like one letter, one sound, to a concept that changes two letters for one sound, together, apart, longer words, those are all huge conceptual leaps, and be very gentle about those transitions. So, and, and really pay attention to what your students do and do not notice and where they hit a wall, because that means conceptually they're struggling making that leap. So paying attention, having those conversations, those critical conversations with students, yeah, noticing the metacognition. Do the comparisons. Go from the noun to the new. Make it so easy to grasp this new concept that there, that you minimize that confusion. I also want to ask you about impact um, because uh, I discovered your your books and started using your activities with. Um, upper grade readers that couldn't read. So fourth and fifth graders, and you really need to have very high impact activities with them to be as efficient as possible so that you can make more growth and cover more ground. And so what do you recommend? Well, the very first thing I do is I have a, a comprehensive assessment tool to find out where the holes are. I have to find out where to rebuild that foundation. So the tool I use is very basic. It's very quick to give, but it organizes skills by categories. So short vowels, short vowels with blends, short vowels with that. Yes, long vowels, complex, and so on. I is this a- from your phonics finder? Is this the one you're talking about? Yes, yes. It's, it, yeah, I think that is it. Okay. So yeah, there's eight parts. Phonemic awareness, alphabet, short vowels, constant blends and digraphs, long vowels, complex vowels, word study, and comprehensive phonics survey. Right. With a right. nonsense word. That comprehensive survey is divided by these, so I have a starting point. And then in that starting point, you know, there are certain activities that I find are incredibly beneficial, you know, modeling and giving lots of practice, blending those words and making sure that the words are, are close enough that students have to fully analyze. Some children have a habit of not fully analyzing words. So I'll use words that are, I call minimal contrast, you know, like it, hot, hut, if they're not focusing on the vowels or going from ran to rain to train, you know, noticing a subtle difference in how it really affects what that word is. It forces children to develop the habit of fully analyzing, which is super important. I do a ton of word building or what some people call chaining. I love doing this. It's really fun for children and it becomes, they become very flexible in their understanding of how to use different letters and sound. It combines both phonemic awareness and phonics because if I have you go from sat to mat, you have to think about what sound is different, what position of the word. That's all phonemic manipulation kind of thing. How am I going, what letter is going to, 
replace that letter and sound and what have you. So it's, it's really deep thinking about how words work. Is that like word letters? Like, so you're doing it where you're saying the word and they're writing it or building it with letter tiles or? Letter cards. So I will say make, make sat and then change sat to mat, change mat to mat, change mat to mop. You know, I move it around depending on what level. If it's kindergarten, I start, you know, just initial changing the initial letter sound and initial and final the initial you know i build but you know as you get older in first grade it's manipulating all over the place and then as i move into second grade i do the same thing but i do it with syllables so they start noticing these big chunks we don't do enough with syllables there are these 322 syllables that are found in 5,000 the most frequent words in english and if children can recognize these big chunks as units it can help them tackle multisyllabic words so that's a whole area that very little has been done in Children. Yeah, your books have syllable speed drills. I love those. Yeah, yeah, because it's really tough for some of our students. Uh, so, and then the dictation. You know, if they have, if we, I need sound boxes and counters, and we need to mark those sounds and think about, oh, you know, sat, sat. We have those three counters. What's that first sound? Is sats. What letter do we write? You know, breaking apart and putting it together, breaking apart and putting it together. Those are really powerful activities. And then lots and lots of application to reading and writing. So if you have older students, finding stories that have a higher concentration of practice on a particular skill students need can be super helpful, but then making them write about the story. One of the biggest missed opportunities in phonics is, you know, they have, we read these decodable texts and then we move on. But if we read the decodable text, you know, let's say it's long A with lots of words with A, I, and A, Y. We have students write about that story. What kinds of words do they have to use? Long A spelled A, I, I'm forcing them to apply a skill, their work that they need work on, but the book is the scaffold. The book is there. The book has all the support. So I'm not leaving them out to dry. I have a built-in scaffold. Oh, and I'm so excited that you just explained it that way because I was just thinking that, especially with my older readers who are so they feel eons behind their classmates. But if they have a book in front of them and you're having that trouble buying in, you say, okay, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna start with this sentence. This is your sentence. And, and they can even look at the first couple words and then challenge yourself, close the book. Can you spell that word? If you're having trouble, go back and check it open and giving them that opportunity to try to do it with more um, you know, confidence, because I think that's where we're missing with our, our older readers, their confidence is just on the floor. So you have to give them that. And a phrase that I often use is reading is easier um, with, what do I say? Uh, easy reading makes reading easier. Right. And so they, they keep practicing it over and over again. So I love that. I think that even with the conceptual leap, that's really important because sometimes it's not that they don't need to, or that they don't know it. It's they don't have the confidence to even exactly. start writing it. Exactly. And so having these scaffolds in place and slowly removing them to see where they feel comfortable, you know, you can make those adjustments and that's really powerful. It's not a test. Writing's not a test. It's an exercise of putting our thoughts down on paper and thinking about how we express those thoughts both conceptually, but also the actual spelling of the words. So if they need scaffolds, I give them to them until they're, they're ready to not, or they don't need them anymore. I love that, the book being the scaffold. Um, and I think you even mentioned that in that training also, that if they have to reread that book to find the answer, that that builds the fluency 
Oh yeah, I tricked them into doing lots of things. <laughs> I may, you know, when I ask questions about a, a little decodable text, you know, I, I first make them answer it to a partner. So they're all processing their thinking and using language, but then I make them go into the text to find the answer. So I'm forcing them, I'm tricking them into rereading, which is more fluency building, and then supporting their answers with text evidence, which is an early reading behavior that's super important. I mean, there's so much we can do with these little texts that is not being done. There's so many missed opportunities, which is why, you know, you saw that presentation about using decodable text, why I really want uh, teachers to use it in a more impactful way. And I've been throwing in different kinds of things that have helped me and the students that I work with or the teachers that I work with to elevate the, the instructional impact we get out of a very simple text. We so you can have comprehension. Things. It doesn't just have to be a decodable yeah, moment. Exactly. It, you know, that's the primary goal is to practice those skills, but we're going to work on comprehension. We're going to build some early reading behaviors. We're going to have lots of rereading and different ways of rereading to so it's enjoyable. We're going to write about it. And I, I even do um, vocabulary work where I choose a tier two academic word that's not in the story, but about the story and I introduce it and I use that word throughout the conversations and encourage the students to use that word. And then I encourage them to use it in the writing. Like I, I give the, the example of a, a decodable book, Shorto, about frogs. I see a frog, the frog can hop, hop, frog, hop. But there are all these great uh, photographs of frogs in their habitat. So I introduce the word habitat and say it's a place where animals uh, where animals live. And as we read the story, we're going to look for information in the words and in the pictures about a frog's habitat. So I, I ask them questions and I use the word habitat. And then, so they're using the word habitat. You know, people don't think to do this with the decodable, but children have so many vocabulary needs. If I can include one or two academic words when I'm talking about a decodable and get children to use it in their, in their speaking, it's just another way of chipping away at their vocabulary needs. I'm always thinking of ways to elevate these. So you said you had studied with Isabel Beck. That's kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I use her defined example ask. She's brilliant, yeah. Oh, I want to keep talking to you forever, but I know time is valuable. Um, Mary, do you have any final questions? And then Wiley, is there anything else you just want reader teachers to know, like while yeah. you've got them listening? I just wanted to let you know how much I really appreciate this like complex conversation because um, it reiterates that we are all very professional and we have lots of tools in our toolkits and it doesn't have to be a black and white issue on anything. It needs to just be this gradual release of, um, you know, giving the kids the ability to do what they are taught to do. And um, I think that that's so powerful. And I highly encourage all of our listeners to check out his books because um, I, one of the ways that you are just so wonderful is sharing your information that, that is accessible and it's easy to understand. And you can kind of put yourself in the classroom and I'm imagining, oh yes, I know exactly which student I would try that strategy with. And I know exactly what that would look like the way I would be teaching it. And I think that that's a really great gift to be able to share with educators. So we very much value you being on our podcast and being a part of the Reading Teachers Lounge today. Thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. And thank you for saying the word accessible. I used to hear that early on and I always thought that that meant that my writing wasn't sophisticated enough. And then I started wearing it as a badge of honor. Like I'm, you know, the whole point is to be accessible. I don't want to write in a way that people can understand what I'm saying or connect to it right away. So accessibility is important to me. So thank you for, for seeing that. 
my grad school professor, Asa Hilliard, talked about the simplicity on the other side of complexity yeah. and actually how hard it is to get to that simple, accessible level for people, that that is really the highest level of writing and communication. And that's, that's where the translator role, I think, comes into play. Is there anything else, Wiley, you want to tell teachers? Just keep fine-tuning, keep asking the questions, keep searching for the answers. The best teachers I work with are never satisfied. They always have answers, they're always reaching, they're always growing, and your students will benefit from those efforts. And, you know, it's, it's been very challenging a couple of years. And so hang in there. You know, what you're doing is so impactful and so important and so transformative. Don't ever lose sight of that. You know, it's, a, it's, it's really amazing work. And so thank you all. <laughs> Thank you so much for this. We wish we could have you in the teacher's lounge every single day. We this really so appreciate this. Okay. Hey teachers, I wanted to take a time out to tell you about something that I've used and loved over the last year. They're called Daily Harvest. Like me, you might have seen their ads on Instagram. That's how I discovered them. I chose them last year because I needed quick and nourishing foods with my busy teacher schedule and also healing from my brain injury to make sure that I got good nourishing food quickly. I've been ordering once a month now for over the last year and I just love their smoothies, oat bowls, and flatbreads. They also have tr treats like bites. Um, I get the ones that taste like chocolate chip cookie dough. They have ice cream scoops. I love the salted caramel. And then there's a special chaga and chocolate latte that's hot chocolate with um, reishi and chaga mushrooms that really helps me calm down in the afternoon. I will prepare the smoothies and oat bowls to take with me to school in the mornings and then I will bring the soups and harvest bowls that they offer to school with me and heat them up in my hot logic mini oven in my room and so that they are hot and ready for me by lunchtime. I love that they add vegetables and everything that they serve even things like smoothies that you think would only have fruit have vegetables in them, and so does the ice cream. My favorites are the carrot and cinnamon smoothie, which tastes like carrot cake, the squash and chai oat bowl, which tastes like pumpkin spice bread, pear and arugula flatbread, and the lentil and tomato harvest bowl. Those are always in every order that I get from them. Check them out at the referral link in our show notes to get $35 off your first box. Or if you want to DM us at Instagram, Facebook, or email us at readingteacherslounge at gmail.com, we'd be happy to send you the savings code link. I love that they have an easy-to-use app where you can change your selections or pause shipments. I'm never caught by surprise when an order is coming. Because of that, they email you regularly as well. I also love that their packaging, most of it is recyclable or compostable, so I'm not wasting a lot of materials. Try Davy Harvest. I promise your body will thank you.